Morton Cole, and welcome to the first Shelf Esteem podcast of 2018. My guests this week were two local writers who, if you haven't heard their names before, you definitely will be hearing them again. Susie Taylor was the 2015 winner of the Waddle Fresh Fish Award for her young adult novel, Dispelling the Myths. And Terry Doyle was shortlisted for the 2017 Fresh Fish Award for his short story collection, We All Do. Not only are they both gifted writers, they're very avid readers, and we had a great and wide-ranging discussion. I hope you'll enjoy listening to it. As always, I started by asking what they've been reading lately that had left a big impact. Go ahead, I know what you're going to say. <laughs> like it in the Bardo. Oh, yeah. Yeah. Uh, I don't think Susie's read it, but I have... Uh, I just finished it. I think I read it in three days, which for me is probably a record. Uh-huh. I mean, it's short. Yeah, but... Know, there's a lot of white space on the pages, but I really love George Saunders anyway, and I've been putting it off, and I got gift certificates for Christmas, uh-huh. and I went down to Broken Books and got it. Oh, nice. And it was just so good. Like, it was life-affirming, uh-huh. but it was also really sad. It just had such a spectrum of feelings in such a small space. I... I loved it. The voices were, there were so many voices, mm-hmm. and were, it was odd, it was weird. I don't know it's what, a beautiful book. I don't yeah. know what more a book could do yeah. other than talk about how to live knowing that you're not going to live forever. Yeah, how to live in the in the shadow of mortality. It's, it's, oh, it's such an amazing book about life. I actually read it because of a podcast interview, because... I had Robert Chafe in here months ago, and he had just finished reading it and was raving about it. Uh, and I got it then and started reading it. And as I think I told you on Twitter, I really struggled with it at first because the whole thing he does there with mixing in real historical quotes with made-up ones with no distinction between them. You know, like, I have a history degree, so that really that really bothered me at first, okay. and I really wrestled with that. I was like, this is a library book, but if it was mine, I would go through with a highlighter and a color code. <laughs> like, what are the real and what are the... Fa-? And then and then I just let go of that and let myself be taken over by the voices in the story, and it was amazing. I cried at the end, yeah. Yeah, I, I teared up a few times. I didn't know which quotes were real or weren't. And eventually... I googled to find out. <laughs> That's the kind of brain I have. I love the idea of getting the library book from the library and somebody having gone through it There were that close to there being a copy at the AC Hunter Library <laughs> that that was done with because I really had to restrain myself from doing it. But I know a lot of people don't care, and I totally understand as a writer the reason why he did it that way and the comment he's making about you know stories and how we how we process history and stories, but I still struggled with it a little bit. But then once I let go of that pedantic, uptight thing, I was just totally sucked into the world of that book. So yeah. And it's such a quick read. It you is, just yeah. fly through it, and the voices just pile over on top of each other. Yeah. Uh, yeah. It it's was, like a chorus of voices. Almost. It really is. Yeah. Apparently there's a podcast, and, and I think they're making a movie as really? well. And the podcast has, like... A hundred different voice actors. Oh wow! Uh, Megan Mullally and uh-huh. Nick Offerman, I think. Oh, how interesting! Yeah. Making a film about it. Oh, that's great. So I think I think the podcast is supposed to be really great because you hear all the distinct voices right, just yeah. come in. And, oh, I would like to hear that. Yeah. Me too. That is interesting. I always put um, at, uh, when I post these podcasts, I always post a link to all the books uh, that we've talked about. So maybe I'll put up a link to that as well. That you know, that find uh, where people can find that online. Yeah. What about you? What have you been reading lately that's left a real impression on you? I would say, I mean, I think especially because we've been reflecting upon the last, the, the past year, yeah. but uh, Eden Robinson's Son of a Trickster is, I think, my favorite book that I have read, you know, 
both recently and in the past year. Okay, now I haven't read that yet, but it's in the house because my daughter got it for Christmas, but right. neither of us has started reading it yet, so I'm really interested to hear what you say it's about just, it. I think it's just a, it's a beautiful book, and it's it's a difficult book. It's um, it's heartbreaking in many ways, but it's also really life-affirming, and mm-hmm. even the flawed characters in it, you know, have beauty in them, and there is hope for them as well. And it's also, it has um sort of deals with some trickster kind of stuff, which I don't always love, but I love the way that Eden Robinson does that. I yeah. that really, really engaging, and that surprised me as well. Hmm. I was talking to Amy Donovan about that book last night, because yeah. she said she thought it should have won the Giller Prize. Um, but she said it does what we should all be aiming to do, which is give people a perspective on a life or a, a way of life that is divergent from our own. Yeah. Yeah, I think that's absolutely true. Yeah. Mm-hmm. And I, I think I think there's something, you know, it's also it's a worthy book in that way, but it's also just completely engaging. I mean you open it up and you're like, I was gone, like, you know, yeah. two days later I was like, Oh, where am I? <laughs> yeah. 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 And I think a book has to be like that. Like I've really made a conscious effort in twenty seventeen to read more diverse books from writers of more different, you know, non-white uh, mainstream backgrounds. But yeah, it it also just has to be a good book. It has to absorb me. I can't read a book and feel like I'm reading it because it's good for me or it's politically yeah. right to be yeah. reading this book. It, it also has to just suck me in like any book would. And, and it sounds like this one does. Oh, absolutely. Yeah. yeah. And I also, I mean, I love Monkey Beach, which was one of her early oh, okay. books as well. Yeah. Yeah, I haven't read any. I haven't read either of hers. But like I said, that one's in the house now, so that puts it almost automatically. <laughs> that and the fact that I've heard it so highly recommended yeah. puts it uh, puts it on a on my reading list for 2018. Um, what else? Are any other books that stand out to you? Maybe over the past year or the past little while? Published in the last year, I haven't. Not necessarily, read but read in the past year. I just finished White Teeth by Zadie Smith. Oh yeah. I think I'm the last person to have read it. No, I would be the last person because I just started reading Zadie Smith this year, but I didn't read White Teeth. And it was totally, again, it was the library. It was the vagaries of what they happened to have in stock at the time. So I read Swing Time, which is her newest one, uh, which I loved. And then On Beauty, which I didn't love for very specific reasons, but I still want to read White Teeth. So I think, Susie, you told me White that she was 25. Like, she, she was 25. I know, oh my goodness. I was 20. I'm exactly the same age as Sadie Smith, and when yeah. I was schlepping books at a bookstore, she was having her book on the top of the bestseller list. <laughs> that, is, that is the most discouraging thing to focus on writers who are exactly the same age as you. But, um, but I, love, I love that book when I read it, mm-hmm. when, you know, back then. And yeah. I, you know, I've read all of Zadie's work as it's come mm-hmm. out. But if, uh, White Teeth is still my favorite. It would be the one that I would recommend yeah. for hers, absolutely. It was nothing like I thought it would be. Really? Because like, I know a lot of people who love Zadie Smith, and I, because of who most of those people were, I kind of had the expectations going in. Okay. And it was just... It's not all intellectual-like. <laughs> was yeah. that it? Like, did you expect it to be more literary, or I don't no, know? No, I, th- I don't know. I, I think I thought thought it would be more feminine, to be okay. honest, but uh, it was just, there were so many, again, there were a lot of voices, and it was just, I don't know. I didn't have specific expectations, uh-huh. but I found myself surprised in what I th- it was. I think I found her writing, not having read that one, but having read two others, more both more fun and more accessible than I expected it, because she is one of these writers that people talk about very, very seriously, so you think yes. it's going to be very, very serious? Yeah. I loved all of her italics for emphasis. Uh-huh. I, it was like, uh, permission giving. Yeah. Like, okay. <laughs> it's okay to use italics. I can use italics. <laughs> <laughs> 
Good. I, I also loved um, The Best Kind of People by Zoe Whittle, which oh, was this year. Oh, I haven't read that. I literally picked that up like yesterday at a bookstore. And that was another it. one yeah. that I got from the library and was just mm-hmm. gone. I, had, I even read it on my phone that I hate to do, but that was how it came in. And I was yeah. just like, well, I'll try this. But yeah. then it was like in the middle of the night still <laughs> scrolling through. So I read that this year, too. I liked it. I didn't love it, but I liked it. But I read it because I thought it was an important book. And I... I found it, I just found all the characters so incredibly engaging, and as well as, you know, the very timely subject matter. Yeah. Any others? I'm sure I have a list here on my phone. <laughs> I mean, you're allowed to bring in notes. <laughs> I have a list. You have a list. We have a whole spiral-bound notebook, which I love. I read, and at first when I picked it up, I was like, okay, I'm not going to read this. This is too much. But then I got into it and loved it, fell into it, was... Uh, no Scarred, uh, his oh, My Struggle series. I yes, read the first yeah. volume, but it was so boring and yet <laughs> so uh, captivating at the same time. Hmm. It's just the verisimilitude. It was just. So I, I've real. talked to very few people who have actually read those books. A lot of people have opinions about them without so, having read them. I didn't them. think you were allowed to after you said all those nasty things about the Northern <laughs> Peninsula. I thought yeah, I was had, like banned. You had to the... let a certain amount of time go by in Newfoundland before you admitted you that you read it. The cloth cover yeah. on the bus. Yeah, I thought it was great. Like it was just, I don't know. Again, almost permission giving to just be very specific uh-huh. about locality or wherever you're from and it's it's almost mundane but at the same time gripping Hmm. and i don't know how he does that yeah and i found the dialogue really weird and perhaps because it's translated from norwegian yeah it's always hard to know with translation is would it be as weird in the original it was 600 odd pages and it was pretty dense but still I, i loved it and when i was done I was like, that was great. Yeah. I'm probably not going to read the other five volumes. <laughs> but I'm that, glad that's I read so that. great that you want to read the whole thing, but <laughs> well, glad to have read it. It's a big time commitment. Yeah. You know, yeah. So much else to read, and I, I get the gist of it. Yeah. 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 <laughs> I think there are there are a lot of books like that that's like, wow, that was I invested a lot of time in that, and I'm really glad I did it. Not sure. I, well, I mean, that was that way with Infinite Jest. Like, yeah, you read Infinite Jest, you've committed that chunk of your life. You're glad you've got that piece in your literary arsenal, but yeah. it's, it's, it was a big thing. <laughs> yeah, I couldn't get through it. No? I just, I, you know, it was one of those things I tried and I tried and I was just like, just, I'm just going to move on. And it's okay to do that. Yeah. yeah. This is a thing that I find keeps coming up with conversations with people here on the podcast is, is it okay to give up on books and say, this book is not for me. I'm just going to move on. Because I think a lot of us have that idea that you start it, you've got to finish it, you know, but... I put down books all the time. Do you? Mm. Yeah. Usually I'll do at least 60 pages. Uh-huh. Well, that's Hopefully giving it a fair shot. Yeah, yeah, if they're not going to grab you in the first 60 pages. Yeah. I mean, you, you want to be grabbed. There should be a hook at the beginning. You yeah, know, ideally, right? yes. But yeah, Yeah. There's, a, there's been a lot of books I put down this year. Mm-hmm. Yeah, that's fair, I think. Yes, I've had the reverse problem when I keep my library books keep expiring before I finish them. So <laughs> like, I'm like two-thirds into several books that yeah. I really was enjoying, but... Yeah, the brother is one of them, which uh-huh. I was like so into. But the wait list is so long. And now yes. I'm back at the beginning. Oh, and, and, the, like, and the worst thing with the you 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 get e-library books, right? Yes. yes. <laughs> so you can't cheat the library by just hanging on to them and paying your fees. No, there's you, no. they will disappear right off your device. And although I do get. Um, I got a lot of interlibrary lines out, uh-huh. out in Harbor Grace, but again, yeah. it's like that thing, they've sent it all the way to me, I feel like... You feel like you've got I to... I feel yeah. like I have to give it up, that's yeah. my time is done. Yeah, so. I had that experience this year with Amor Tal's A Gentleman in Moscow, which I had been 
enjoying but not ripping through really fast mm. and then I realized I'm halfway through this book and it's expiring tomorrow you know well and the inevitable is they all come in you go and in three days suddenly all the books you've yes. been waiting for arrive at yes the same that's time. actually happening to me right now yeah. like I have I'm, I'm reading the shadow of the wind and then sing unburied sing Jessamine West just came in right. and I've got Celesting little fires everywhere that I know is going to come in within a day or two because it's saying your next. Yes. Year. And like I, there's too much all at once. Yeah, for me it was brother and uh, the Jules Thomas Hines and Mary Walsh in like this oh, like yeah. in like two days. I was like, <laughs> I just now I'm still on the wait list for the Joel for Joel Thomas Hines. But what did you think of Mary Walsh's book? I just read that. The one. part of it that I have gone <laughs> through, to. I loved. I felt it really like it. It spoke. I mean. I mean, it's impossible to read it without hearing Mary Walsh. Of course. In yeah, your head. Yeah. But it was very evocative of yes. a St. John's that I don't know, but I have heard yeah, about. Yeah. So. For me, being older than you, but not quite as old as Mary Walsh, uh, though though close in age, it was it was evocative of, yeah, a time and place that was very similar to, though a little bit removed from the one I grew up in growing up yeah. in St. John's. Uh, and yeah, there were a lot of details there that really was like she's so good at at those little details that bring the place and time to life. So yeah. I really liked that. But you didn't get all the way through that before they the, li the library it, sucked it? it back off your device. <laughs> yeah, it's it's worth finishing, I think. But it is interesting that whole idea of of it's interesting that you have no problem just abandoning books and getting so far with them. That's that's good. I think it's very healthy. They're a big time commitment. You they, know, and yeah. I wanna... I want to really enjoy it. I I want three things. I want to enjoy it. Like I want to learn from it, uh -huh. and I want to escape into it. Mm -hmm. uh, maybe it's only two things. <laughs> <I'll enjoy laughs> but they're it. two good things. Yeah. <laughs> well, I think that's yeah. And I I think at a certain point you just realize life is too short to be committing that kind of time to books that you either aren't learning from or escaping into. Yeah. yeah. I find with short story collections, often I'll read one or two stories, and then it gets. Yeah. Decide, and I'll pick up a novel and then I don't go back to it. I've been reading Cathedral by Raymond Carver for months. Yeah. <laughs> it's, you know, one story at a time every yeah. couple of weeks. But of course you can do that with short story yes, collections. You know, exactly. you, you could you could take a year or two to read it. I think that's like a healthy approach to Carver too because you read one and then you need like two weeks to recover from the existential <laughs> crisis and, <laughs> you. and then, you know, you can like, a few months later you can read another and recover yeah. and then keep going. Definitely. Yeah. yeah, some books do require, some novels too do require recovery time like you know it's, it's it's like I've been so immersed in the world of this novel and it was so emotionally shattering that I can't just immediately pick up and go on to something else I think mm -hmm. Lincoln and the Bardo was a little bit like that Definitely. for me like, I, I what do you about, read the day after you put down Lincoln and the Bardo <laughs> I thought about just reading it again right away but I didn't I actually picked up Joel Hines book oh, okay reading that which is a little different yeah quite different <laughs> quite different yeah I haven't read that one I've read all of his earlier books and uh that one is, uh, yeah, I'm, I'm one of the people in the, like, 16 weeks on the wait list in the library for it. We were just talking about about that, too. Like, I had read his other books, and so when I picked up Joel's book originally, I read a couple of, a couple of chapters, and then I put it down for a bit. Uh -huh. um, because it felt like, oh, okay, this is one of Joel's books. Yeah. I know what how this is going to go. But now, in picking it back up, I... No, the other two were just a lead up to this. Oh, that's like interesting. Like, this has just pushed it so much further. I wondered about that because, I mean, he does tend to write out of that sort of the same kind of character. 
Um, and the only quibble I had with, with the first two, Down to the Dirt and Right Away Monday, which I both love, but I thought, gee, these characters are really similar. Like, similar. is he going to do the something really... Yeah. yeah, the hard ticket, exactly. Uh, so when I saw the description of this one, I was like, well, that's just the hard ticket going across Canada. <laughs> but it's interesting from someone who's read it to say that he is really doing something different yeah. here. Now, I'm, I'm only... I'm not halfway through, but it is... It's definitely different. Yeah. And he's really giving voice to... A new character. Oh, that's and great! A voice that is just not out there. Yeah. I don't think. he's such a great writer. So I'm, I'm really, you know, I was really excited to see him win that award and, uh, and and get that attention. But I'm still eager to see what the book itself is actually like. I wonder how it would read to somebody who's not familiar with our vernacular. Yeah. Locally. I, I think though it's like that thing that you know you can read. Um, I mean, Irving Walsh is the extreme, but we read all sorts of people from other places exactly. with different dialects with different you yeah. know different uses of language and that's partly what you know it's partly what makes reading so magical exactly is that you it's being immersed you yeah. know what it's like to be in India or that's right you know Australia or to, to be in Montreal even and understand a different experience you had loaned me that Tim Winton book and it kind of had a little bit of that I was reading Kevin Barry recently and it was it was very Irish a lot of it yeah. was like I didn't yeah. wasn't intuitive but, and the Colin, know, I, the Colin Barrett, the young skins, young skins. Oh yeah, like that has. I mean, it's actually Flynn. It's Irish. Yeah. Speaking of someone who's your own age. Yeah. <laughs> or but younger. Good writers don't. I mean, they don't stop to explain all that to you. And I've had people, you know, look at manuscripts of mine and say, well, you know, is a reader from outside Newfoundland going to get this? Are they going to understand this? And I'm like, you know, I spent my entire it feels now like my entire young adulthood reading novels set in the American South. Right. And I was like 35 before I figured out that grits was basically like cream of wheat. <laughs> I had my visual image whenever I read that somebody was having grits were like some kind of deep fried things or something. It's like nobody ever stopped to explain that to me. They just told me what the character was having for breakfast and got on with it. Yeah. And I like that. I want to just be immersed in the world. And I expect to do the same thing when I write about Newfoundland. Like just, you know, keep up, people. And I, yeah, and I think also, like, I mean, if you're engaged in a story and you really want, if you wanted to know what grits were, if that was so imperative, yeah. you would have figured that out. Exactly, you know? but I'm not, because I just need to know what yeah. the character is doing and the breakfast is just background. Yeah. <laughs> the grits are part of the window dressing. Definitely. Yeah. Yeah, so I guess we all have our own equivalent of those things in, in regional writing that I don't think you should stop to explain to no. readers from outside. In fact, one of my few quibbles with Mary Walsh's book, and I would really love to ask her about this, is she has, because it's it's a very much set in Newfoundland, a real Newfoundland novel, but published by a mainland publisher, and there's a reference to her character dropping out of school in grade 11 because she gets pregnant and not going back for grade 12. And because I know that at the time that character was growing up, there was no grade 12 in Newfoundland because I was in the last grade 11 graduating class. And I'm like, obviously Mary Walsh knows this. And I'm wondering, did her Canadian publisher say, oh, no, just, you know, change that because it'll be easier for readers in the rest of Canada to understand, which would take me off if it turned out to be so. That's funny, because I'm just remembering there was a reference to Halliday's, but then there was, like, this explanations of Halliday's. This yes. long-standing butchers on the yeah, street. Yeah, we don't, yeah, Like, we don't need... You don't need to do so that. We don't need no. to do that. If it was a butcher yeah. on a corner in Toronto, you wouldn't take time no, to explain it to say. me. So don't... Yeah. 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 Yeah, so I'm I'm a big believer in yeah, just immerse your readers in the world of the story, dialogue, dialect, and all, and just you know. I worry about that in my own work sometimes, sending things off to the mainland and thinking this is too regional and oh, nobody's no. going to get it. I don't think you should at all. I don't all. think so. No. I think if anything, it makes it sexier to have 
something different, right? Yeah, exactly. I mean, yeah. well, like you were saying about about you know some of the other books you mentioned earlier, like you read it partly because you want to be introduced to a different world and a different perspective that you don't know for, through your own experience. Why else do we read? So, yeah, yeah, I think that's part of why I like the notes card so much because it was so specifically Norwegian. Yeah, yeah. But it was still universal. Yeah. And that's something that, you know, most of us don't, you know, I don't know much about the details of daily life in Norway. I do now. Yeah. <laughs> Maybe more than you ever expected to. Did either of you think about the question of a book that's had a big influence on you or a book, you know, that's stayed with you for a long time throughout your life? There, I, this is one of those questions where I had like seven answers. <laughs> that's good, though. Um... I guess Margaret Drabble has a trilogy uh, that I wrote down the name of it because I can never remember what the name of it is. It's like The Radiant Way, yes. and there's a, The Needle's Eye, and there's another one. Oh, yeah. And I have read them. I, you know, my mom had them on the bookshelf when I was a kid, yeah. and so I probably first read them when I was younger than the uh -huh. characters. And then I read them when, you know, the characters were in their 20s, and I had one perspective on them. Mm -hmm. And then I read them my 30s and had a different perspective and uh -huh. then in my 40s and had yet another perspective uh -huh. and recently and I was reading one of them and the woman who I remember thinking was the old lady was like my age oh yes <laughs> I was yeah. like oh <laughs> but every time I read those books I learn mm. learn something that's interesting because I read those years ago in my 20s but I haven't returned to them and it would be interesting right. to see that change of perspective yeah there's actually an early episode of this podcast that I did with some of my friends called uh, we're all as old as Marilla now because we were talking about reading out of Green <laughs> right? Gables and recognizing that oh my gosh the old lady is like she's 45 or something at the time <laughs> you know, or maybe 50 at most so yeah that's interesting to return to a book or a series of books over the years and see how your perspective yeah. changes. I did that with um, Catcher in the Rye, which I read when I was 18 and was like, I just want to slap Holden Caulfield all over the place. Like, what a whiny, self-absorbed brat. Get over here. So that's like two years older than the character at the time. And then I read it again a couple of years ago, and I was like, oh, I just want to take care of him. Like, I read it like such a mom yeah. as, as, as coming to it as an adult and parent of, of teenagers. So it is so interesting how your perspective on books changes over time, especially if you do go back and reread. I haven't gone back to mine, so yeah. like I'm, I'm a bit reticent to to say how influential it was, but it definitely was. Um, I read it, I guess I was like 20, 21, uh -huh. and I was backpacking, and I was just trying to decide, like, I think I'm, I want to write. I mm -hmm. think that's what I want to do. And it was um, a heartbreaking work of staggering genius. Oh, yes. Yeah. And I think because it's memoir, it's fictionalized memoir, that yeah. that's, I think, what spoke to me so much is how close I felt like I got to this other person's reality. Mm. And I felt like that was the height of literary achievement. That yeah. you could get let a stranger get so close to your life experience. Yeah. And it was staggering and heartbreaking. <laughs> I read that when genius. it came out, but entirely because of the title. Like I just thought it was such a great title. <laughs> Somebody handed it to me and I had no idea what it was. And uh -huh. I started reading it and of course the the opening is really hard to get through where his mom's on the couch and she's spitting by oh yeah my god i've read it but my memory i can't remember like it that vividly either. Either. no and then him and his brother playing frisbee and it's i don't know it's just it had such range yeah and it, it was very accessible and it was funny it was sad it just it did it all and 
Yeah. I, it's really stuck with me. And I, it wasn't until I started writing more and in hindsight that I realized how big of an influence it had. Yeah. Yeah. And I think that's true of a lot of books that you see how they impact with your life and also with your own writing over mm. over a period of, of, of years. Are there books that either of you would say has been really influential on you specifically as a writer, like that have, you know, whether fiction or nonfiction, that have shaped the writer you've become? Um, for me, definitely it would be um, Lynn Cody's Hellgoing, which is a collection of short stories. Oh, yes, yeah. And also Carmelita McGraw's short stories, yes. which were both things that I read sort of just before I really started to write myself. And mm -hmm. I read them both and I thought, like I, I get these stories. These yeah. stories are making sense of the world to me, and I can, I can do things like this. Like yeah. this is kind of how I think. Yeah, yeah. Carmelie is a great short story writer and very underrated, I think, for that. Like I know. think, well, I think there are a lot of. I also think like Bernice Morgan's um, topography, topography of love, love is another yes. that I think should be like. I think yeah. every Canadian university student should have to read, read that. those. Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. It's there's there's so many and I, I confess to it and I've often confessed on the podcast to a bit of a blind spot with short stories and that I really struggle with them. If a short story doesn't do it for me, then I'm like, what was the point? And if I really love it, I'm like, why didn't they make that into a novel? Because I want to spend more time with these characters. But I am slowly growing to overcome that. And some of the ones you mention are, are you know, they're they're ones that, that I really love. I haven't read Hell Going. I have read a novel by Lynn Cody. I'm trying to remember what it's called. It'll come to me later. The Antagonist or a Mean Boy. I think it's Mean Boy, yeah. but I'd have to go back and check. Susie loaned me that this year. Yeah? Yeah, <laughs> it was great. Again, it was a long, long time ago, and I'm trying to remember for sure which one it is. The Hell Going is one of the short story collections that I keep putting up and putting down, and I'm uh -huh. like two stories in. Um, I think for me it was... Um, I took some classes with Lisa Moore at Memorial, uh -huh. and... She was describing my style as minimalist, and I didn't really know what she meant, and so she suggested I read Raymond Carver. Okay. And so I read uh, What We Talk About When We Talk About Love, mm -hmm. and I think that was, again, permission giving. It's like, oh, yeah. okay. It's okay to do this. It's okay this. To, yeah. to write this way. Uh -huh. and, like, and then I felt like I was just imitating poor Carver after that. But, <laughs> um, also, I think Megan Cole's short story collection, too. When I read mm. that, I, I'm just like, oh, yeah, you can do this, and she know. does really interesting and and different things with the short story form. I think. Yeah, yeah. Um, I don't know if it's the theater background or, but there was just something, I don't know, visceral about those stories, and they were just very regional. A yeah. lot of them were anyway, and I just related to them. Mm. I related to the characters, and I think it was one of the first times I'd read short stories where, the. The character spoke to me. I, mm. I, I felt like I knew them. Yeah. I think part of it is her theater background. I actually know that collection better. I don't think I've actually sit down and read it, but I've been to a lot of readings where she's read pieces from yeah. it. And it is, it's almost like performance art to me, yeah. the way she, yeah, the way she does readings. She's a very good reader. She is, yeah. Very theatrical. Well, I think what's great about, I mean, both her collection and Eva Crocker's new collection. Oh, really yes. Forward, yeah, which is great, it's too. It's right right now St. John's. Yes, it's not St. Yeah. John's, you know, past. It's like right in this moment. Yeah. Which is kind of amazing. 
I've been craving that about. so much. Yeah. Yes, yeah. And, and, and there's else. been less of a, I mean, I write historical fiction myself, so I know there's quite a space for writing about, you know, the way things used to be. But I think there's also, there is, like you say, there's a craving. There's, there's a real thirst for people writing about the way things are now and, you know, contemporary St. John's. And there's just not that much no, out there. No, there's not that many writers doing it. And, of course, also the definition of contemporary very quickly becomes dated, like what somebody was doing 20 years ago, sure. writing about like contemporary. How old is Meg Cole's collection now? I'm thinking, oh, yeah. <laughs> one, two, three, you know. Yeah. yeah. Or even like something like um, This All Happened, yeah. which is kind of contemporary St. John's, but it's probably... I, well, that's 15, what I was thinking of, because I was saying that felt really, really contemporary when it came out, but that is 15 years ago now, so mm -hmm. yeah. And that's, you know, to, to, to bring it to the personal for a minute, when I was reading your short story collection when it was in the Fresh Fish competition, um, that, that was one of the things that drew me to it, was that there were these pieces that were that so much St. John's right now, you know, and, and that particular slice of life. Like, I think that, you know, there's obviously really a place for both, but they're, yeah, I'm really interested in writers who are doing that very contemporary thing. Yeah, I don't know how to flashback. I think that's the problem. <laughs> <laughs> but thank you for saying that. <laughs> um, you said the question about have you ever fallen in love with a character from a book was one that got you thinking for a while. Well, it did because I, I was like, like, surely I've fallen in love with the character <laughs> from the book. And so I thought about it, and I thought about it, and then, like, this morning at 5 a.m. I woke up and I was like, wait. And it was like, Enid Blyton has a character called George, oh, who is, yeah. like, this tomboy yes. who loves dogs. <laughs> and, like, she likes to eat and go for walks, and she loves dogs. And I thought, that is exactly my kind of woman. Yeah. <laughs> and then I was like, and then, like, who next? And then I was like, that would have to be um, Joe from Little, Little Women. Little Women. the next writer, yes, bright, yeah. intense, brave. Yeah, yeah. And then after that, at first I was like, well, I was thinking, like, Bellatrix was strange, and then I was thinking, like... Lucy from Everyone with a View, and then I was like, no, that's just Helena Bonham Carter from the movie. <laughs> You're getting these things confused. <laughs> confusing. Yeah. But, but it's, it was a difficult, it was a really interesting question. I still feel like I want to go back through books and say, did I like this book because I had a crush on the yeah. protagonist? Like, yeah. You know, it's difficult to... That's interesting, yeah. Because yeah. and, and, and there's also... You know, there's somewhat of a fine line there between falling in love with or having a crush on and identifying with. Sure. You know, for me, Joe and yeah, exactly. yeah. <laughs> for me, Joe and Little Women was very much the, this is who I want to be if I were living during the American Civil yeah. War. You know, <laughs> but all these, all these sort of brave girl writer characters, mm -hmm. I think, really, uh, you know, paved the way for for me. Like Emily of New Moon was another one that was like which is really such a sad and tragic and romanticized sort of version of what it means to be a writer. Uh, but, uh, yeah, yeah, that's, that is so interesting. Uh, and it kind of feeds into to the, the books that stay with you from when you were a child or a teen. So you read the Enid Blyton books as a kid, did you? Or I did, yeah. yeah. I mean, I read, like many of us, I just read everything. Yes, yeah. my hands on. Um, so I love those. I think the two that... that were actually later books that really stood out for me were The Outsiders by Essie Hinton. Oh, which yes, yeah. I read Time. I, I mean, I probably read it every year still. Mm -hmm. And uh, a book called Bilgewater by Jane Gardam, okay, which was definitely a case of identifying with the character. Uh -huh. It's sort of about this, you know, the lonely girl, <laughs> <laughs> outsider girl. 
um, set in England, and I, I was thinking, I think it must be either the, the late 50s or the early 60s, uh-huh. and it's just, it's just a coming-of-age story, but it's just a beautifully written, very empathetic story. Uh-huh. I feel like I read as a child so many novels set in England. And I mean, I was saying at a later stage, I read so many set in the American South. But before that, there were all these Eng- tales of English childhood right. that uh, that was so different from the actual world that I was growing up in, but was so influential. You know? Boarding schools. Boarding schools for yeah. sure. Yeah, the boarding school books long before Harry Potter. You know. I started the Heather O'Neill book this year, and I didn't finish it. And okay. I think that might have been why, because I didn't relate to the orphanage boarding school sort of environment. Uh-huh. I haven't. This is... Um, the Lonely Hearts Hotel. Right. Yeah, I haven't read that yet, but it's, again, it's, it's been on my radar. down after. But I was, you know, I had it downstairs. Like, I have books in different rooms <laughs> yeah. in my house, and I had it in a room where I'd only pick it up and read a couple of pages and uh-huh. then put it down once every couple of days. So maybe if I had given it a yeah. pride of place, it, I might have read better for me. Yeah. I think maybe I should go back to it. Sometimes it's just not the right time in your head for a specific book, too. Yeah. Yeah. It's interesting you mentioned The Outsiders, because that is, like, I... In my first teaching job, I taught that to grade mm-hmm. nine, which was in 1986 yeah. and was a, a really popular with ninth graders then and had been long before that, because I, I had read it myself. I think I read it in college. Um, and now I know a girl who's like a year younger than my daughter, like uh, 16, I think, who is, who practically has the outsiders memorized and yeah. you know knows every word. And it's like that's really timeless for a young adult novel to have. You know, it's pretty much three generations now of of kids who've loved that book. I think like I think it's like so many of those books. It's like there's the parents are gone. Yeah, it's a permissive. Thing where it's about, you know, all these books are about the post war English novels are about people living extremely, right? Living yeah. extremely without a lot of, I mean, without supervision in some ways, but also without a lot of prohibitions. Mm-hmm. So, you know, yeah. there's a freedom to that. You know, yeah. like the boys are given the moral authority to fight in a way that you would never want to see kids fighting, but there's also something really attractive about the idea of being this young. Yes, yeah. I mean, good, responsible child raising and good parenting doesn't make for great fiction. No. (laughs) All the things you would never want your kids or the young people you know to actually do are the things that are wonderful to read about. But even as adults, I think, you know, reading about people's happy middle class yeah functional marriages yeah. <laughs> parenting is just not, not super good interesting make. Yeah. yeah it's got it's got to have dysfunction and, and conflict to be for there to be anything yeah. to drive the story but it is such a trope in children's fiction that the parents are gone or dead or in other ways rendered useless um, and i guess that's that's to to awaken that level of uh, of possibility of things that can go wrong i didn't think of a character I fell in love with. I tried, and no one really popped into my mind. And then a name popped up, and I don't know if it was Love or Lust. <laughs> but it was Sissy Hankshaw from uh, Tom Robbins. I think it's another outside attraction. Oh, it okay. might be even Cowgirls Get the Blues. But I haven't read any of those books in a, a really long, long time, time, well over a decade. So I, like, I don't even remember the character that well. But her name popped up. I yeah. think she was the girl with the really big thumbs that was uh, hitchhiking around the country. Yes, that was, that was in that <laughs> even when Cowgirls get. But I don't know yeah. if she's in the other one too. No, but, she's, yeah. she's just in that one. Mm-hmm. Yeah, that's the one that popped into my mind. <laughs> what about characters you've identified with? Like, are there characters that have? I think 
almost all of Michael Winter's protagonists. Yeah. He just has this way of dealing with, I don't know, I, th I think Lisa called it complex masculinity. Hmm. He has these male protagonists <laughs> that are vulnerable but capable, and I, I don't... I don't see that anywhere. And maybe it's because it's regional and I relate to it I think you're much way, so. nicer than most of Michael Winter's <laughs> <laughs> I gotta be honest. Well, thank you. <laughs> yeah, they're, they're, they're often very problematic men, I think. They're always like, doing bad things to animals. I'm always like, God, I'm almost really? enjoying this book. And then something bad happens to an animal. And I'm like, oh, again. <laughs> again. I'm trying to think of an example. I know that he shoots a dog in one of the short stories, but that's by accident. Pat it's still a bad thing. Yeah. yeah, it's hard for me to enjoy a story where anything bad happens to a dog. Yeah, it's funny how that was kind of like. Yeah. <laughs> it's kind of a. I have a story you should not read. <laughs> I think it's actually in your. Is it in your yes. collection? Yes. You did read. Oh, yeah, and I've got to tell you something about that. That actually, that story, prejudiced me for a while against your collection, <laughs> because. Um, I was reading that on the weekend I had my dog put down. Oh, my God. And I was like, this guy's an asshole. <laughs> uh, but, you know, eventually I was able to get past it and view it with a more more dispassionate eye. But I had, had, you know, I mean, obviously it's a traumatic thing when you take your pet to be put down. And then I had gone away with friends for the weekend. And I was reading through, the rereading the those of those manuscripts that were kind of like the, the top uh, of the pile that we wanted to give more close attention to. And I had to almost consciously block off that story in my mind and say, I'm going to think about this collection without the dog story because I can't cope with that right now. <laughs> Which begs the question, are we... Do we do our protagonists need to be likable? Yeah. that's And I don't <laughs> think so, no. But I think we all have certain lines in our head that we're, we don't want a protagonist yeah. to cross. It's an uncomfortable story. It is. Sure. It is definitely an uncomfortable story. And that's good. But like, in, in that story, at least the guy gets his comeuppance yes, at the end, yes, right? Yes, so. yes, yes, yes. <laughs> I was good with that. But yeah, no, that is an interesting, that is an interesting question about the likable versus the unlikable protagonist. Because, you know, just like... You know, like kids going running around unsupervised doing interesting things without parents. Books about nice people, you know, are not necessarily that interesting to read. Like, I love flawed characters. Like Joel's, all of Joel's. Well, yes, characters. yeah, deeply. Or that Annika Schoenfeld. I, I didn't read I it. I haven't read that. Eng Engleby by Sebastian Fox is mm -hmm. the one that comes to mind where the character is kind of this creepy stalker dude, but you're at first, you're not aware that he's really right. the creepy stalker dude and then he and it's, it's revealed, I mean you're reading yeah. it and you feel like you feel your tension yeah. rising and yeah right Easton Ellis American yeah. Psycho or even Less Than Zero yeah there's a, there's a book The Bone People by Carrie Holm she's a New Zealand writer and it's it's a long time like probably about 20 or 25 years ago um, and it's not that the character is unlikable it's that the character does a bad thing um, the the worst thing from for a lot of us in that the the character uh, uh, physically abuses a child in his care. I can't remember now if it's his son or or like a foster child, uh, but he basically beats the kid, and that's the red line for a lot of people. But the thing that I thought was amazing about what Carrie Holm did with that book, even though in a lot of ways it was so painful, I've never gone back to reread it, um, is that she actually makes you empathize with the guy who beats up the kid and you kind of see from who he is and where he's coming from that this is the only 
way he has to respond to the situation. Like he's obviously come out of a, back, a fairly abusive background himself. And you, yeah, I mean, actually, I'm reading this book and I'm rooting for him to get custody of the child back. And then I'm thinking, why? What's how am I rooting for this character? Yeah. But it's you know that's the great thing. Yes. The books force you. Some books force you to think about complicated. Yes. Complicated things because nothing is black and white, and mm-hmm. it, it really forces you into unco- things we you know things we walk by all the time and turn our heads away from. That's yes. The power of fiction, I think, is. Uh, imparting empathy. Yes. Um, and, th- and this is what Joel does in this new book too. It's yeah. Like, make, like you understand this recidivist character. Yeah, and yeah. imparting empathy for a character that you wouldn't actually have no. empathy for, I think, I is so important. I know people like that protagonist, and I do not root for them. In real life, yeah. But in reading this story, you know, you yeah. can't help it. And that's that's an amazing gift. That's an amazing thing for fiction to be able to do. Is there a book that you want other people to read, like a book that you loan to or press on or encourage other people to read? <laughs> this is another one of those questions, and I'm like, oh, there's so many books that you could yes, choose yeah. to say. Um I guess one that I was thinking was um, The Fall of the Sparrow by Richard Halanga. It's an older book. Okay. It's a, it's a beautiful, terrible story about a man whose wife leaves him and whose daughter has died, but he takes this sort of journey to uh, Spain and um, where his daughter has been killed in a terrorist train attack which is based on reality right that the actual event yeah. and again he does some terrible things in this novel mm-hmm. but he actually also hurts a bat which i didn't like but <laughs> <laughs> you have no problem with anybody hurting a bat do what you want to those friggers um, but it's just it's a it's a beautiful there's there's so much in it it's just a beautiful book and i think it's I mean, I think it did well when it came out, but I don't think... It's I've never... I don't think I've even heard of it. Yeah. Which is interesting. And, uh, and I guess the other is uh, Julia Glass, who I discovered through the library by one of those randoms, I'm going to read this, uh, The Widow Oak's Tale, I thought okay. was a beautiful, beautiful book. And uh-huh. everything I've read of hers, I've just been like, why have I... Why had I just heard of this woman? You know? Yeah. Why have not I always known that she was there? Yeah. Yeah, I'm like that with some writers that like writers that I'm completely obsessed with that I feel like nobody else has ever heard. Yeah. Of. I'm like, how how are you not all reading these books? <laughs> how about you? Do you have definitely? Yeah, um, I keep recommending George Saunders to people. Um, right, Tenth of December or Pastor Helia or uh, Persuade in Persuasion Nation. All of his short story collections. Mm-hmm. I haven't read in C- Civil War Land and Bad Decline yet, but. I just if they haven't read them yet, I'm like, okay, read Escape from Spiderhead and then come back and talk to me about it. Like, I need to <laughs> and do you get good results with that? Like Every do people, time. Yeah, that's great. <laughs> yeah. Um, Bridget Canning's book this year, too. Oh, yeah. Also yeah, wonderful. that was yeah. great. It just covered so much, and she's always so timely. Mm. She just has this way of having her finger on the pulse of whatever's happening. And again, she does that contemporary St. John's Definitely. thing extremely well. Definitely. Yeah, yeah. Um, Young Skins by Colin Barrett, I really liked. And I don't even know why I liked it so much. Like, I, there's nothing specific that I can put my finger on that that I want to recommend it, but uh-huh. it just stuck with me. I loved it. I blew through it. Yeah. And then I wanted other people to read it. Yeah, yeah. And sometimes it's wanting other people to read a book just so you can talk about it. Like, I yeah. want somebody, yes. I've read this book, I want somebody else to read it so we can have a conversation about it. Yeah. And I think uh, another recommendation from Lisa this year was uh, 
Don DeLillo's uh, Libra, which is about, um, I forget his name every single time. He assassinated John F. Kennedy. Uh, oh, Lee Harvey, Lee Harvey Oswald. Oswald. It's about Lee Harvey Oswald, but it's fictional. Oh, okay. But I, I thought it was real. Uh -huh. like, I knew it was fiction, but it was just it so well real. done. Wow. And it was about like the CIA operatives as well. Uh -huh. Does it have real quotes in it? Or? <laughs> no, <laughs> no quotes. But it was just, it was immersive. It was really good. And I just want to talk to people about it. Yeah, <laughs> yeah. yeah. As we're getting close to being, our, our time being up, I always ask people, is there a book you wanted to talk about that we didn't get to mention so far? Is there anything that's still in your mind? Well, I think um, I think we're all excited to read Sharon's book. Oh that's my kinda goodness! Like yes, the Sharon Bell is the book people people down. now that's out. Kind yeah. of not out. I haven't read it yet. Yeah, but I'm really looking forward to that. I, I read that again in one of my previous iterations of judging contests, mm -hmm. which I seem to have done a lot of in the last couple <laughs> of years. Um, I read that when when it won the. Uh, Percy Jane's first novel award and uh, I was blown away by it like that was an amazing amazing book and when I talked to Sharon about it she's like oh yeah you'll find it really different the published version I've changed a lot and I'm like it was already so good what did you so yeah that's uh, that I really think that is going to be one of the big Canadian books of 2018 I think that's going to be one of the books that everyone's going to be talking yeah. about international too oh yeah definitely I think they already are I think yeah. it's yeah, yeah. The airports well I mean it's it's both so well written and so timely I mean, writing about yeah. immigration and refugees right now is, you know, clearly the time is right for a book like that. But also, it's just a fabulous book. Yeah, I'm really excited to read that. Yeah, it's great. It's great. Even the version I read a couple of years ago <laughs> was great. I'm sure the published versions. I've got it. Uh, I've got it on my. Um, tablet as an ebook now and in fact I would have started reading it except again that thing we were talking about with the library because I bought hers but then like three books that I've yes. been on the wait list for the library came in I was like okay well there's a time factor to these so I have to hurry up <laughs> any others Terry that you wanted to talk about that we didn't get to anything um, else Lisa has suggested so many good books to me this yeah. year. I think I borrowed a copy of her uh, Lori Moore book, uh, Birds of America, and uh -huh. it had all of her little notes in it. Oh, that's she was great. teaching from it, I think. And it was just, it was so good. It was short stories, and they're hilarious, but poignant at the same time. Mm -hmm. And, uh, I mean, I don't have much to discuss about it. It's just that it was great. Yeah. It's also neat to read a book that has somebody else's notes in it, I someone think. Someone who you revere Yes, well. yeah, someone, because yes. yeah, it's kind of like you're almost in conversation with them while you're reading it. Yeah. Why did she stop here? Why is she... Yeah. What's this note Why about? is this underlined? <laughs> I, know, I just would have blown right past that little yeah. passage, you know? That's so neat. That is so cool. I, I actually am kind of, I haven't marked up books for years. I used to do it years ago and, and don't anymore, but I still kind of enjoy a book that someone else has marked up or annotated. Mm -hmm. This was a lot of fun, guys. Thanks very, very much. Thank, Thank you, you for having you. us. All right. That wraps up my conversation with Terry Doyle and Susie Taylor. I hope you enjoyed listening to it as much as we enjoyed having the conversation. If you want to check out the titles of any of the books we talked about, go to my website, trudymorgancole.com, click on the Shelf Esteem link, and it'll take you to the blog where you can see all those books listed. Thanks once again to Chris Cole for editing and theme music, and I'll be back in a couple of weeks with some more great guests. Until then, read a good book and build your shelf esteem.